We are doing uh, part two of um, Acts chapter one, uh, preparing for promise or being prepared for promise is the title of this morning's message. So I know I realize it's been two weeks since we heard part one. So uh, I will spend a little time recapping, but not, not a whole lot. So if you would turn to Acts chapter one, as we said uh, on part one is that um, the book of Acts is really the continuing gospel of Jesus Christ after his ascension into heaven through the Holy Spirit empowered church and according to the doctrine of the apostles. So this morning, we're going to focus our study on verses 12 through 26 of chapter 1. After we pray, we'll read the text uh, for consideration. Then we'll make observations and applications as we divide the text. So would you uh, join me in prayer this morning? Father in heaven, we give us, give us ears, Lord, to hear what your spirit would say to the church. We ask, Lord, for your grace to illuminate the text to our understanding, to engage our will to obedience, to inflame our hearts and love for you and for your people. Lord, we pray for the brothers and sisters in Christ who will gather this morning at Yamhill Christian. We pray, Lord, that you would anoint the teaching ministry there, that those souls would be saved and that lives would be changed. This morning, we pray for President Biden. I pray, Lord, that you would bless him with strength and good health and that he would be thankful for your mercy and that he would be moved to will and do of your good pleasure. Lord, we ask for protection for those who desire justice for the unborn. Pray, Lord, that you would keep the clinics open and safe from vandals. We pray that you would keep them, protect them from those who would desire to thwart their efforts. We ask all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So as you are able, would you please stand for the reading of the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God from Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers the company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field that was called in their own language, Ak Eldema, that is, field of blood, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time 
that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of God. You can be seated. So there's been much uh, maligning, I think, uh, from from some Bible commentaries, uh, commentators about the disciples and making uh, this choice uh, of of putting forward uh, these two men of of actually doing something um, they, they they view as sort of sinful. But I, I want us to to look at this from a from a different angle and to see that these were these brothers were being obedient to what the Lord had called them to do. And so another title that we might have for this sermon is is what do we do while we wait? What shall we do while we're waiting upon the Lord? You see, we are a people that are waiting, aren't we? But what are we waiting for? And what does waiting look like? Is waiting passive? Is waiting apathetic? Is waiting an excuse for laziness? Charles Quindall says this, the stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives as a result of our lack of holy waiting. I, you see, I, I would posit this to us this morning that effortless waiting is a deadly foe to spiritual growth. Effortless waiting is a deadly foe to spiritual growth. The apostles are told to wait. They're told to wait for the promise of the Father in Jerusalem. At the same time as they see Jesus' ascension to the Father. So we as a church, we aren't waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit has come to us. But we are waiting, aren't we? We are, we are a people in waiting, and we are waiting for the return of Jesus. We are waiting for the redemption of our souls. So what is the activity of waiting? This morning we'll see the apostles were actively waiting for the promise. That is, they were certain of the promise. They were expectant concerning the promise. Waiting on the promise, though, was not an excuse for them to be lazy. Waiting was not a license to be apathetic. In their expectation, they continued to actively live according to the certainty that God would soon act. But they still had things to do. They still had work to do while they wait. So if we look at the first volume of, of the gospel according to Luke, as, as Acts is really the second volume of, of one book, in chapter 24... Verses 50 through 53. I want us to look at this as well. So then he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now listen to verse 52 and 53. This is waiting. This is waiting on the Lord. This is waiting on the promise of the Holy Spirit. And they worshiped him. 
And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. See, Jesus has ascended to the Father and he's done so right before them. He's given them instruction to go to Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Father. The promise is that from God they would be given power, power to testify to the truth of Jesus Christ. They would be able witnesses. Where this word witness means martyr, where martyr comes from. This word witness, you have power to testify concerning me, Jesus would say, no matter what the cost is to your family, your reputation, even power to face your own death, not wavering to testify to the truth of the gospel that is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus commands them to return to Jerusalem and wait for this promised Holy Spirit. But here they are in anticipation of the promise, with expectant hope of the promise. We should note that the apostles' response was anything but passive, anything but lethargic. As we looked at verses 52 and 53 of, of Luke's gospel in chapter 24, they worshipped him, they returned to Jerusalem as he directed them, but they did so with great joy, and they were continually blessing God in the temple. They rejoice in their current circumstances. Think about us. We are waiting for the Lord to come. We are waiting for His return. And you know what I hear most from most Christians is grumbling, complaining, and whining about the current situation, the way life is. But here, see what these, these apostles did. They rejoiced in the Lord, in their salvation here. And now what God is for them now, they rejoiced in Him. And they blessed Him, waiting for the promise. Do you believe the promise that the Lord is going to return? Do you believe it? If you believe that the Lord is going to return, and it could be very, very soon, it could be today, if you believe that the Lord is returning, why are we not rejoicing in our great salvation now? His return is good news for us. We should be rejoicing in who He is and what He's done, what He has accomplished in us, in saving us. But they, they rejoiced in their current circumstances while they waited for the promise. They were continually uh, thankful for their salvation and they were blessing the Lord in their current position, assured of the promises to come. So now, let us look at Acts uh, chapter 1 and we'll look at verses 12 through 14 a little more closely. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. At the command of Jesus, the disciples returned to Jerusalem. They made the walk, which is a Sabbath day journey, which according to Jewish law was about 2,000 cubits or like six-tenths of a mile or less. Although they were mindful of the law concerning work, see, to work, that would be to work, to walk further. Although they were mind, mindful that of the law concerning work, they began the work of waiting. Waiting is work. You see, what they did is they continued to gather with the brothers. They continued to gather with the brothers and with the sisters. They were rejoicing in their great salvation in the Lord. 
while they wait upon the promise in expectant hope, the promised Holy Spirit, the promise of power to face opposition to the gospel and remain faithful. They gather. They gather. They worship in one accord. They do the work of waiting. What is the initial work of waiting that we see here? The apostles pray. The disciples pray. In waiting, prayer is the first priority. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, including these women. All of these were devoting themselves to prayer. The apostles pray. The leaders of the church pray. The women of the church pray. We will soon see the assembly numbered above 120 souls, that which would resemble represent a community of believers. They respond to the promise by gathering to worship, rejoicing in their current circumstances, rejoicing in the future promise of the Father, and they pray. You see, if the Holy Spirit is the divine gift which should empower and guide the church, then what is the proper response to? What is the appropriate human attitude toward God as you wait for the gift and promises of God? We who are born-again believers have the Holy Spirit. We're not waiting upon the Holy Spirit to come. He has come. He is in us. He is with us. He is guiding us, and He is directing the church. But we are still waiting. We are waiting on the Lord's return. We are waiting on the promise of God for Christ to come and rule and reign uh, in full on the earth, right? The appropriate human attitude toward God as we wait on the gifts and the promises of God, the corresponding response toward God is prayer. It is as the church prays, as the apostles pray, that they receive the Spirit. It is the church that as she prays, that she too will receive the promise of the Lord's return. The promise of the consummation of the salvation of our souls. As the church prays, she receives the promise of the Father. You see, prayer is the work of waiting. Prayer is the activity of the church. Prayer is the activity of those who are confident of the future promises of God. Prayer is the work that the church must do. Are you waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ? Have you made waiting an excuse for apathy and laziness? Are you engaged in the work of waiting? Are you being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? Are you growing in self-control? Are you being trained to live an upright and godly life in the present age? Is your growth in these things of the Lord stunted by effortless, prayerless waiting? As the day of the Lord draws near, do you neglect to gather with the brothers and sisters, failing to praise God, failing to rejoice in your great salvation? While you wait, is your religion wooden and stiff? Have you made a habit of effortless waiting? I would say, church, Christian, repent and pray. Repent and pray. Do the work of waiting. When you think you've prayed enough, pray again. When you think you've prayed enough, pray again until you recognize your bankruptcy in prayer and then pray some more. 
I speak to you not as one who has this down. I speak to you as a man who realizes and recognizes his bankruptcy in prayer. Bankruptcy in dependence upon God. What does prayer indicate? I can't do it, Lord. You must. Prayer indicates that you, you trust in the promises of God, that he is who he says he is. He's done what he said he's done, and he will do what he promises. I throw myself at the mercy of God. I need him. That is what prayer declares. It declares our bankruptcy and declares his goodness. The church has much to do, much work to do in the present age as we wait on the Lord's return. Because do you think that you will grow in godliness without prayer? Do you think that you will grow in abstaining from worldly passions if you don't pray? Do you think that you will grow in self-control if you don't pray? Do you think that it is possible for you to live an upright and godly life in the present if you don't pray? Do you think it's possible? God works through prayer. He works on us and in us through prayer. Prayer is not praying to get things from God other than God transforming us into the likeness of His Son and conforming us to, according to His will. As we, as we saw in the Lord's Prayer, or really the disciples' prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. That is, make me willing to live according to Your will. Make Your will my will. That comes through prayer. Change comes through prayer. It doesn't come by osmosis. You're not just going to suddenly sit around and do nothing and be lazy and sit around and do nothing and be and, and never attend church, never be in fellowship with brothers and sisters and expect that you're going to grow. You know, I, I've, we've started watching, uh, re-watching these uh, little cartoons because now we have little, little Jariah, little Bubba with us. And... When our other kids were young, we always watched these VeggieTales uh, cartoons, right? And we're re-watching them again, and they're quite hilarious. And one of my one of one of my favorite little skits they do is, "We are the pri- uh, pirates who don't do anything." And they they come to 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 talk about wh- whether they're going to go to Nineveh or not, or uh, whether they're going to catch this ship or not, and they come. And they don't know what to do. And when they walk away, one of them says to the other one, well, what do we do now? And the other one says, well, nothing. And he goes, well, you, sir, are a genius. Well, we are not like those who do nothing. And I know sometimes what might hinder us from being those who pray, those who are uh, praying people, is we think sometimes that prayer is nothing, that, that it's not an activity that it's not a work, that it's not something that we do. It is the most important work that we do as Christians is to pray. And so we are not pirates who do nothing. And those who do nothing are not geniuses. See, there is much work for us to do in the present age as we wait for the Lord's return. And we must understand this, that none of us is sufficient for such things. We know that none of us is sufficient for the things that God has called us to. So as such, the first work of the church of Jesus Christ is to pray. 
to pray in complete, confident, expectant hope in the promises of God. I posed this question to myself this week. Jeff, do you desire a move of the Holy Spirit? The answer, of course, is yes. Do you desire a revival of the church of Jesus Christ? The answer, of course, is yes. Do you desire a vibrant fellowship at Spring Hill Church? The answer, of course, is yes. Well, while you wait for the glorious hope and appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, are you praying? Are you in prayer? Are you on your knees dependent upon something that only God can do? It's like Alistair Begg talks about the idea of revival, right? And, and certain of our brothers and sisters might hold what they call, they hold a revival. And so they have a tent and they put it out in their church lot and they hold a revival. Well, Alistair Begg puts it like this. You don't hold a revival. God does the reviving. He says, so if you want to hold a revival, here's what I think you should do. You should go out of your house and paint a circle on your driveway and stand in the middle of it and then say, dear God, revive everything in the circle. That's where revival begins, by prayer, right? God, revive this man. Revive this church. And brothers and sisters, I say to you, this comes with much prayer. Much prayer. The church receives the promises of God as she prays in expectant hope of those promises. As the apostles wait on the promised Holy Spirit, they devoted their efforts in dependent prayer. They rejoiced in the Father and they blessed Him in worship in the present. In other words, they were waiting and their waiting was nothing, anything but passive. It wasn't stiff or wooden. In fact, their expectant hope was actively working. Do you have hope? It's actively working as you pray. That, that is a sign that, that hope is actually alive in you. That you are a praying soul. Hope is alive in me, so I pray. I pray because I trust in the promises of God. I pray. They also had some practical work that needed to be done in the community of believers while they waited. Let's look at verses 15 through 19. In those days... Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Ak el Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Someone had to take initiative in the community. Someone had to take initiative in community. While they wait, somebody had to take initiative. Somebody had to do something. With the Lord ascended into heaven, it is Peter who steps up. It is parenthetically noted in our passage that the company of persons was about 120. And that there is to show that in the Jewish mind that you had to have at least 120 to have a legitimate council. A legitimate council who could make binding decisions. So this is, is to show that 
their decisions that they're making are binding upon the community. They had work to do. Decisions had to be made, and they had to make these mandates about uh, about what to were to be ordered that were going to be binding upon the community of believers in one accord. And Peter speaks to them concerning their present situation. Basically, he says this, we are now only 11. We once had 12 in the company of apostles, but Judas, who was numbered and had a share in this ministry, he went aside. Peter begins that the scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. You might be wondering, how do we reckon this account as accurate? Doesn't Matthew's gospel say that Judas Judas returned the money? How then could he bought a field with the proceeds of his betrayal? Doesn't Matthew's gospel also say that Judas hung himself? How then did he burst hope open in the middle? Well, a plausible harmonization of these two passages goes something like this. Judas hung himself, as Matthew says, but the rope broke and his body ruptured by the fall, possibly because he was already dead and decomp had already begun. It is possible that the priests purchased the field with the money gotten by Judas' betrayal after he gave it back to them, remember? But as he had given them this money and they bought the field with that money, that it was attributed to Judas through their agency. The field was bought by the priests, but it was Judas who indeed died in that field. So Peter here first, he addresses them. I want us to notice this. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. So this is the first place where Christians were identified as brothers. A man steps up to lead and he says, this is my new family. This is a new community. However, the difficulty of the account of Judas, the point that Peter is making here is that in the office that Judas once had, it is vacant. And the scriptures are fulfilled in his betrayal. They are fulfilled in his death. And the scriptures further dictate that another person must be named to fulfill the office of apostleship. While the apostles wait, there's scriptural commands that the community and the believers are charged with. Things that they are charged with working and doing as they wait. The 12th position is vacant. And while they wait, Peter reminds them that there is work to be done. Spring Hill Church, while we wait for the return of our blessed hope, our God and Savior Jesus Christ, there is much kingdom work that we need to be doing. Much practical work scriptural commands that we as a church must be about. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus gives the command to all disciples uh, the work that must be done while they wait for his return. If you want to turn with me to Matthew 28, and I want to begin in verse uh, 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, and to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." This is known as the Great Commission, right? This is Jesus 
as he is ready to depart, he gives them instructions for their ongoing work while they wait for his return. And we are in that same position. We are waiting for the Lord's return. And this, this passage known as the Great Commission, I think sometimes that the church of Jesus Christ has treated it as the great suggestion. Not as the great commission, but really a great suggestion. This is a suggestion that some of you ought to do and some of you don't. No. The passage is clear. Disciples will make disciples as they go. As you go, make disciples. Making disciples within the church. That is intentionally doing a spiritual good in the lives of confessing believers in the church. Teaching one another to follow the dictates of Scripture. Encouraging one another to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Stirring up one another to love and good works. Not only are Christians of every stripe commanded to make disciples within the church, but as you go about living in the fallen world, you're to love your neighbors enough to proclaim to them forgiveness of sin that is found only in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. I would ask you this, is your religion stiff and wooden? If it's stiff and wooden, it would be if you are not making disciples, if you're not a praying person who is making disciples, who is following the commands of Jesus, your religion is really stiff and wooden. It is one that you keep to yourself. Are you fulfilling the command of Jesus Christ, investing in the spiritual growth of the believer that is sitting across the aisle from you? Are you proclaiming the good news about salvation to the one who is across the street from you? There's much work to be done in the advance in the advance of the kingdom. According to the scriptures, that is to be fulfilled by whom? That is to be fulfilled by you. You don't hire a professional. You don't hire a pastor to do all of the work of the ministry for you. The scripture is clear that every disciple is to do this. There's much work for you to do in the advance of the kingdom. And that is to make disciples as you go, as you live, as you are going, in your home, in your neighborhood, in the church. Disciple making happens in the church as well as it does outside the church. Some people view this as just a, a, a call to evangelism to evangelizing the lost. It is a call to discipling in the church, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. We do that as we want another, uh, each other. I posed a question to several uh, uh, people in the church this week as I prayed uh, about this passage through the week. And I asked this, what are you planning to do for the next week to make disciples inside the church and outside the church? What do you plan to do? This is, this is how I phrase this. What do you plan to do? I emphasis on the word plan. What do you plan to do in the next week to make disciples inside the church and outside the church? I got some good responses and I got some that I had to question. Because my question implies intentionality. To make disciples within the church, you must purpose to do so. 
You must purpose to invest time. You must purpose to make an effort in the lives for your brothers and sisters. With intentionality, you must put into action a plan. A plan that includes encouraging and edifying your brothers and sisters to help one another mature and to present them mature at Christ's coming. That takes intentionality on your part and on my part. It doesn't just happen. You don't get to, you can't just sit around and expect the brother or sister across the aisle from you to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ if you are sitting on your hands and everybody else is. It is your work to do, to present one another mature at Christ's coming. You must be intentional when you tell, to tell your neighbor about the forgiveness of sin that is in Jesus Christ. You must be intentional to tell your coworker. Passive waiting does not advance the kingdom of God. Your brothers and sisters in the Lord do not mature in the likeness of Christ accidentally. God provides salvation. God grows believers into the likeness of His Son for sure. But He does through so through instruments of grace. You. He does so through you. He does the work, but He does it through you. He provides the means. He is the way, and He provides the means. Let us move on to the Last section of Acts chapter 1. So one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. While the apostles wait, they needed to fill the office vacated by the betrayer Judas. Notice with me that the disciples had to discern who would qualify for the office, didn't they? They made some qualifications. They made some decisions. What kind of person can hold the office of apostle? That's the question that is their work. Well, first of all, it must be a man. Second, it must be one who sat under the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself. He needed to be one who was with us from the time of John's, uh, John the Baptist's announcement that the kingdom of God was at hand. And he had to be one who had stayed with them from that time until the ascension. He must be able to testify to the truth of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. While we wait, the church of Jesus Christ has decisions to discern as well, don't we? We have things, decisions that we have to make, brothers and churches, sisters. The church must determine this. These are questions we have to ask. And I know this might come and sound harsh, or maybe, maybe not. Maybe you'll get it. The church must determine who are my brothers and who are my sisters. That is something that the Lord has left to us. From Matthew 16, beginning verse 13, it says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. As we look at verse 19, this is not an investment in Peter. This is an investment in all who share the same confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It goes from a singular you to a plural you in verse 19. I will give you, plural, that is all who share that same confession. All who share the same confession that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of the living God. I will give you, collectively, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It is those who share a credible confession. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Those who share a credible confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, that He is the atonement for sin. So I have given you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You will need to discern those who are bound to you in kingdom work and those who you will turn over to the judgment of God. The first question that we must ask, I think, of any brother who, or sister who says that they want to be part of the church, we must ask him this question, who is Jesus? It's not a simple question, actually. I've, I've asked that question of, of many people and got some a varied number of answers. Who is Jesus? This is the criteria number one that the church must ask of those who desire to be among them. Who is Jesus? And the second question we might ask is what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Who is Jesus? And what is the gospel? They're tied very close together. Who belongs to us? What is a credible confession of faith? Part one of a credible confession is this, that God is the creator of all people and He is holy. He is separate. He is pure. He is righteous. He is perfect in all of His ways. He is the rightful judge of the hearts of men. Part two of this credible confession of faith that one must have is that humankind is born with an inherited problem. Sin. All who have been born of the flesh after Adam falls short of the glory of God. All miss the mark of perfection demanded by holy God. Part three, that Jesus Christ was sent from heaven, born of the Holy Spirit to the Virgin Mary. He perfectly lived as one of us, tempted in every way, and yet He was without sin. And He died for the sins of those whom God has called to repentance. Which brings us to the final part of a of, of a. A credible confession of faith, and that is one who responds to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. One who forsakes their sin, forsakes the desire to be autonomous, that is, to rule and reign over themselves, that says, I am forsaking my sin and you are Lord, you are ruler and reigner of my heart. 
You are the one who reigns in me now. I let go. I turn from my sin and I turn to you and to your perfection and I hide myself in your perfection because I don't have it, but I believe fully in the atoning death of Jesus Christ for my sin. It is those that are among the company of believers. And this, my friends, is the work that the church ought to do while we wait. But before we get too haughty, and before we think that it is us who saves or us who might discern the hearts of men and women, look at verses 24 and 25 of our text. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who chooses the one that is named the apostle. It is to Jesus that they pray, show me which one this falls upon. You see, we've come full circle to the work of the church while we wait. Prayer. We must pray and obey. We must live according to the Scripture. Obey the commands of Scripture. Pray to the Lord Jesus Christ, following His leading, following the revelation of God that comes by grace through faith. As the church waits upon the Lord, we are to be actively pursuing holiness. Actively pursuing holiness. Where will that work begin? What would be the first thing if I, I hope you guys will shout this out loud when I say this. What is the first action that you must take in the pursuit of the holiness God requires? Prayer, right? If you desire to grow in holiness, you must pray. Where else are you going to get it? You don't have it. You must pray. As, I, as I've been praying this week and I was walking around, I, all of these things kept rushing into my head and things that I desired and things that I desired to be and wanted to do and, and, and how I wanted transformation in my life and certain attitudes to go away and behaviors and all of those things. And as I walked and prayed, the same thought came over and over again. God, that which I desire, you must form. You must form it in me. I desire all of these things in the spirit. With my flesh, I find the inability to carry it out. God, you must form this in me. As the church waits upon the Lord and actively pursues holiness and actively pursue what the scriptures command, it is the church that prays. It is the praying Christian and the praying church that receives the promises of God. I would ask you, do you believe? If you believe, prayer is your response, isn't it? It is our only posture before the Lord it is the posture before the Lord. It is the work before the Lord that, that, that we are to do while he works in us.